Welcome to Disarming Leviathan. This is Caleb. This podcast is designed to help equip you to reach American Christian nationalism with the gospel of Jesus. Today, uh, we have a special episode. This is the recording from the AZ Pastors Conference, which subtitle was Politics, Polarization, and Peacemaking. This features, uh, this particular episode features a, the keynote session from Russell Moore. I hope that it is an encouragement to you and will help equip you in this mission work. Without further ado, here is Russell Moore. Well, good evening. It is a joy to be with you tonight. And I wonder if we could start by reading a very familiar uh, passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, starting with verse 13 and going down through verse 25. Matthew 16, 13 through 25. And if you could, would you please stand with me before the Word of God? Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Matthew, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. God bless his word to us. You may be seated. I had a a really life redirecting sort of experience Uh, a couple of years ago when I started teaching a a class in the Institute of Politics on a very, very secular uh, university campus. And after years and years and years of teaching seminary students, of preaching and teaching in churches, of uh, teaching Sunday school, I found myself with a group of students, almost none of whom had any religious background, almost none of whom had ever been around a religious person, much less an evangelical Christian, until me. And I expected that a lot of the questions that I would get from those students would be about Trump 
or culture war questions or some of the controversies that are in the news with evangelical Christians. And I was surprised that there were almost none of those. Instead, the questions were all theological, spiritual sorts of questions. Is there a hell? Why do Christians think that someone has to believe in Jesus? Those sorts of questions. The first student who came in for an office hour visit said, I have a question to ask you, and it might be too personal, and if it's too personal, you do not have to answer it. So, okay. Uh, He said, so you think there's like a God, right? Yeah. How does a human being have a relationship with God. And again, if that's too personal, you don't have to answer. That's not too personal. I've been waiting for you for years. We could talk about this for a long time. And those sorts of questions that uh, continually came about those, those most basic aspects of the gospel. So one day, one of the students said, after asking me a round of questions, said, now, wait a minute. So... You're like a, no offense, but a real deal wacko kind of Bible thumper, is that? And I said, you know, after seven years of being called a cultural Marxist, I feel so seen. (laughs) Yes, that is exactly what I am. But I would notice that in the evening, I would go and be with my fellow evangelical Christians who were students on that campus, and most of them would ask the question, how do we live and operate in this very hostile, anti-Christian sort of environment? And I would often say, hey guys, I've kind of been on both sides of the veil here and your classmates actually don't hate you as much as you think they do. As a matter of fact, they don't think about you at all. And the reason they don't think about you at all is because they don't know you're here. And the reason they don't know you're here is because you're in an adrenal crouch expecting hostility and opposition from them, when in reality, if you would get a little bit of confidence you might find that your, your classmates and neighbors actually have all kinds of things they really would like to talk about. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized that actually is not just something going on on a college campus. That's something that is going on in almost every area of American life right now where we have a situation where you have people who are in fear of one another, often loathing of one another. We have a situation that is far different than anything we have ever seen before, where I don't know a single family that does not have some sort of division or tension at the most visceral sort of level over politics. I know of almost no church that either doesn't have tension and division or isn't waiting for tension and division to arise. I know of almost no one who hasn't 
lost friends over the past several years as American society has become more and more polarized. And we're in the sort of situation where often when the outside world looks and thinks about what does it mean for people to hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the first thing that they think about is not the crucifixion of the Lamb of God for sinners. It's not the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. It's not the ascension of Jesus into heaven. It's not the offer of grace and forgiveness through the gospel. It's not the fact that one can be born again. It's politics, culture war, arguments. In a time like that, what can easily happen is that we can become cynical. And we can become cynical in several different ways. We can become cynical by saying, since I have seen so much that is so awful under the name of Christianity and religion, I'm just going to numb myself to everything and everybody. Or we can become cynical in the way that says, well, if this is the way the game is played, I just need to play it. We actually don't have to follow either of those paths. And the word that Jesus gave us here in this text is exactly why not. Most of us who've been in church for very long are really familiar with these words. We often don't think about where they were said. In the year 2020, while those of us in the United States were living through the COVID-19 pandemic, we were living through the kinds of divisions that came in our churches and families over that. We were living through the 2020 presidential election, the kinds of divisions and controversies that came through that. We were living through the exhaustion of the constant influx of one controversy after the other. Most of us didn't pay attention to an archeological dig that was happening at Caesarea Philippi. They found an ancient fourth century church, Christian church, and then dug underneath the church to find an even older house of worship, a pagan shrine to the god Pan. If you don't know who Pan is, just think about the picture that most of us have when we think of the devil. Horns, tail, cloven hooves, this is a God of excess and of wildness, of unreleased sexuality and often violence. And these were the people who would come to give tribute to that God. In this place, Jesus took his disciples there. And he took his disciples not only there, he took his disciples to a place that was a center of pagan worship and also was named after the Roman imperial government that would later crucify him. A living monument to say Caesar is ultimate. The house of Caesar is ultimate. And yet Jesus in this place 
is not cringing. Jesus in this place is not fearful. Jesus in this place is not angry. Jesus, as a matter of fact, in this place says nothing at all about Caesar or Pan. Instead, he says to his disciples, who do you say I am? And when the response comes forward with all of these different answers, followed by Peter, who is able to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, even after Jesus has said, flesh and blood's not revealed this to you, even after he has said, I will build my church upon this rock, gates of hell will not prevail against it, Peter then finds himself being called Satan right away. And why? It's because of something that seems to be so totally reasonable. Jesus says, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be killed. And his friend says, we won't let that happen to you. We would hope for that from any of our friends. But when Peter says this, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why? You are putting your mind on the things of man and not the things of God. And why is that the case? It's because Peter is trying to bypass the cross. Peter here is trying to have the kind of fighting spirit that he will later show when he takes out his sword and attacks the arresting guard. Here in this moment, but Jesus says you are fighting for the wrong thing and you are fighting against the wrong people. Instead, you must take up your cross. Now, this is important for us because we're living in a time that is really not as different as sometimes we think it is. People have always known that you, if you attach religion to anything, you can gain power. Pharaoh knew that. Caesar knew that. Nebuchadnezzar knew that. The Chinese Communist Party knows that. We have always seen that and known that. And yet we are living in a time right now where often what is happening around us is accelerated by technologies that sometimes can seem even invisible to us. So that you have an actual incentive, an algorithmic incentive to make sure that people are fearful and angry. So that what is being engaged so often in American life is not the mind, it's not the heart, it's not the affection, it's not the imagination, it's the limbic system. Because that's the kind of mindset that will share content. That's the kind of mindset that will linger over content. And the more distant we become from one another, the more we get into a mode when that is mixed with boredom, with a kind of imaginary warfare against one another, 
politics becomes ultimate because it's not really politics. Instead, in American life right now, it often is a secularized prophecy chart. In the exact same way that evangelists of the past sometimes knew, you can really build a crowd if you will not only preach through the book of Revelation, but you will preach through the book of Revelation identifying all of the current events and how they are being fulfilled at this moment, and therefore this is the terminal generation, and therefore Jesus is just about to come back. You're able to appeal to that because people are able to think, I am right here at the cusp of the biggest drama in world history, my life really does have meaning. When you add that to a sense of there are people out there who don't just oppose me, but people who are an existential threat to everything, then you can have a response that feels almost like life for a little while. It can feel like there is a meaning and a purpose and often it is really, really easy for us to confuse adrenaline for the Holy Spirit. And we end up then with a skewed kind of loyalty that ends up pitting us against one another and has us merging into whatever tribe or mob we believe can protect us by our belonging. We end up in a time where all around us right now, we are walking through the hallways of a middle school. I'm father of five sons, first two sons that went through, 13, 14, I kind of panicked. And I would say to my wife, I know they're not smoking weed because I'm around them, but they're in this haze all of the time. And then at 15, it was like, oh, you're back. By the third one, I was able to say, okay, there are people who are nostalgic for college. There are people who are nostalgic for high school. Nobody's nostalgic for middle school. Not a single human being who is nostalgic for middle school. And why? Because you're at this really awkward sort of transitional moment in your life where you're trying to figure out who are my people, who are the people who are going to let me sit down next to them, and why are those people sitting next to those people, and what does that mean about what they think about me? That's a terrible sort of situation to be in, but it's just for a little while but not when you have an entire culture and society that takes all of those realities of middle school, all of the tribalization, all of the polarization, all of the potential resentment, and makes it forever. One of the reasons why we have this kind of polarization, one political scientist said, is because it's precisely because we are actually not divided over politics. And one of the reasons we know this 
is because you can do polling uh, surveys and ask people the exact same question, sometimes just minutes apart. And the, you can get two completely different answers depending on whether you preface it with, do you agree with Barack Obama that, or do you agree with Donald Trump that? And then flip it around. We have a society where people are following after our various tribes, and the politics is the second step, not the first step, which is why this political scientist says, actually, the social identity and the partisan identity are so close together that you can find out with almost 100% certainty where somebody fits in political polarization based upon whether they are closer to a Whole Foods or a Cracker Barrel. And that one of the reasons why we have such polarization is because you have so few people who are what he calls cross-cutters. People who fit into situations where their social identity and their partisan identity don't fit completely together. You don't have a lot of vegan, prius-driving Republicans. You don't have a lot of Democrats going to monster truck rallies. Those social identities and those political identities become so merged that when someone differs with me politically, they're not disagreeing with me on issues. They're not even really disagreeing with me on candidates. They're disagreeing with me on me and whether I have a right to exist. When you add all of that together with a kind of catastrophism that says desperate times call for desperate measures, which means all of the norms that we have for what it means to live as citizens with one another, all of the norms that we have of what it means to say, I'm not always going to win in a democratic republic. I'm not always going to lose in a democratic republic. And the people who oppose me right now may be persuaded to come to my point of view. When all of that is gone, you end up with a sense in which depravity is seen as a gain when it comes to fighting off whoever the bad people are. So the response ultimately becomes then, when we start talking about what it means as Christians to pursue the way of the cross, to pursue the way of Jesus, to pursue the conformity with Christ that brings about the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about, often the response is something along the lines of, get real. That doesn't work. I have had, I cannot count how many pastors who have told me that they have had controversy erupt in their churches when they parenthetically said something like, turn the other cheek, love your enemies. To have people say, what kind of political statement were you trying to imply? 
The pastor says I wasn't trying to imply anything. I was directly quoting Jesus Christ. The difficult thing to believe about that is not that that happens, it's that when that happens, the response is almost never, you're right, pastor. I need to go back to vacation Bible school. The response is often, yeah, well, that doesn't work anymore. That works in a Christianized culture. That works in a neutral culture. That doesn't work in a hostile culture. As though Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount in Mayberry. (laughs) Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount in an armed-to-the-teeth Roman Empire, lining up crosses to say, if you get out of line, this is what we will do to you. That feels hostile. And we also need to ask, what does it mean for something to work? It is true that following the way of Jesus does not work if what we mean by work is to avoid the way of the cross. In the same way that we could say sexual fidelity doesn't work if what we mean by work is to have the widest spread of reproduction possible. That doesn't work, but that's not the goal. That's not the point. What the gospel is to do for us is to come in wherever we are on the partisan spectrum, wherever we are culturally, wherever we are politically, and to reorient those fundamental loyalties so that we see ourselves first and foremost, as Jesus' disciples did, not as a zealot or tax collector, not as an Essene or a revolter, but to see themselves as followers after Jesus Christ and therefore having a loyalty that is deeper than just the hatred of the outgroup and that also understands what Jesus means when he says things like to his own disciples, beware the yeast, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. That sentence does not make sense. That does not make sense. It would sound like you were saying, make sure you don't fall into the ways of Michelle Obama and the January 6th rioters. You say, wait a minute, those are not the same thing. Those are completely different uh, categories. The Pharisees were in opposition to Herod's puppet government. Herod was in opposition to what the Pharisees were about. And Jesus says, though, there is a way that you can be transformed and changed, even invisibly, the way that yeast works itself out, invisibly under the surface into the very thing that you are trying to oppose. So as Tolkien said, you cannot fight the enemy with his own ring. We have a different sort of loyalty and that moves us into a different kind of priority that frees us from this cycle that we're in 
where we see politics and culture wars as being either total exuberance, we win, or total defeat, we lose and everything's gone. We see ourselves instead in this time between the times and we also see that what really matters, not just eternally and ultimately, but also temporally, is a kind of Christian witness that is not attempting to assert raw coercion and power. Think of the times in American history where Christians have succeeded from a place of strength, prohibition. And then think of those times that Christians have operated from a place of bearing witness, often from a spot of complete marginalization and weakness. The colonial era Baptists who said we should have religious liberty for everybody. The civil rights movement speaking not just to the people who were already with them, but to the consciences of the people who were opposing them. Think of the way that those things transformed by actually walking after the way of Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised by that because Jesus tells us that. He tells us that that will be the case. And he also tells us that we will be in the kind of situation we're in right now where often it's not just that we have differing arguments, it's that we have entirely different realities supported by entirely different media ecosystems in a way where often we are having to say, one of us is crazy. And sometimes we both are. But what that does is to put us in the kind of situation where in order to belong to whatever tribe it is that you uh, have chosen, you have to be in total agreement and whatever the claims of truth that are demanded by your tribe, you have to not only embrace, but you have to embrace with vigor. That's not politics. That's not culture building. That's discipleship. But it's often discipleship in the wrong way. And what it does is to change us into the kind of people who often think using Machiavellian means in order to get to Christian goals is the way that Jesus would have us to act when he told us the reverse. Now, here's why this is important. There are people who are watching all of us here, watching Republicans, watching the Democrats, watching the independents, watching the we don't know what we are anymore, uh, watching all of those groups. And especially for those of us who bear the name of Christ, the key question that they're asking is the question I asked as a 15-year-old in Bible Belt America. Is this really just about politics? Is this really just about whose culture is the best? 
Is this really just about social control? Is Christianity just a means to some other end? Because if it is, what every generation of people has learned when they see that either on the left or on the right is, oh, just tell me what we're really about and I can get to that without giving up a Sunday morning. Now, I have young people who are committed Christians who are coming to me Nicodemus-like to say that they are right on the precipice of walking away from the gospel and the church for completely different reasons than they would have at the beginning of my ministry. When almost all of them at that time were coming to say, I'm not sure that I can believe in the supernatural anymore. I don't know if I can believe that a virgin got pregnant. I don't know if I can believe that a dead body was raised from the dead. Or to say, I think that the moral rules of the church are too strict. I almost never hear that now. Instead, I hear from people who desperately resonate with the message of Jesus desperately resonate with the need for forgiveness of sins. And it's not that they don't believe what the church teaches. They don't believe the church believes what the church teaches. And that it's instead about something else. Brothers and sisters, that's not a new issue. We have had that since give us Barabbas. We have had that even before that. We have had that all the way back to just east of Eden. And yet, what does Jesus so often do? He puts us like Peter in the place where we think everything is lost in order to get us to cry out, Lord, save me. There are a lot of people who have the concerns that you and I do about this time who will often say, what do we do? And there are some things that we do. Curtis Chang, who's been with you uh, here today, and I and uh, some friends of ours have been working on a, a curriculum project, the after party, helping churches to think through these issues of polarization and not about what the, the what of what we ought to do in politics, but the how, how do we, how do we get there? There's some things we can do. But sometimes when people say that, what they want is, what is the seven-step process to get from craziness to sanity right now? Problem is, God almost never works that way. We almost never go through the water with a seven-step plan. We go through the water with a pillar of fire with just enough light for the next step. And it might be at this moment of crisis and turning point that what God is doing is saying, I will build my church, but I am not just going to keep repeating zombie-like whatever it is that we have right now. I'm instead taking you like I always do for my church and putting you through a situation where you say, 
we don't know where we're going so that we will start to realize that we never did. That when we say to Jesus, we don't know the way, we hear the response we're intended all along to hear, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It might be that that is what God is doing right now. But in order for us to get there, it's going to take a refusal to be in denial about what situation we're in, but also a refusal to be in despair. Pan doesn't get a footnote at Caesarea Philippi. Caesar and Philip don't even get a call out at Caesarea Philippi. What does is a way that goes through the offering up of blood, through the forgiveness of sin, through the transformation of people into new creations, and through the kind of kingdom that is not from this world, the kind of kingdom that cannot be a mascot to any group or culture or party, The kind of kingdom that says, gates of hell, bring it. We overcome, not with power dynamics and strategies, but with the blood of the lamb and the word of our testament. That has not changed at all.